Hello there. You're listening to the Babies in Common podcast, where parents, parents parents-to-be, and professionals can join together and talk about all things pregnancy, birth, feeding, babies, and parenting. And you don't even have to put on pants. So join me, Jeanette, an IBCLC lactation consultant, childbirth educator, mostly retired birth doula, and mother of two, and my colleague, Melissa, a labor, delivery, postpartum nurse, breastfeeding counselor, and mother of three, as we have a conversation with our special guests. We hope you enjoy today's episode and let us know your thoughts and learn more about what classes, groups, and services we provide by going to our website, babiesincommon.com. All right, let's get going. All right, hello everyone and welcome to the Babies in Common show. I'm Jeanette. And I'm Melissa, and today is Wednesday, July 8th, 2020, and we will be discussing breastfeeding, but not the mechanics of latching or making milk, but how outside influences can affect your success or decisions around feeding. And our special guest all the way from across the pond is Dr. Amy Brown, and Amy's a professor at Swansea University in Wales, where she oversees a Master of Science program in child public health. She started her studies in psychology, and the arrival of her first baby sparked her interest in the barriers that women face when it comes to breastfeeding. She went on to have two more children, all while finishing her PhD. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Um, and she went on, um, and she spent the last 12 years looking at how psychology, culture, and society can put up barriers to breastfeeding. But her work focuses on how we can improve breastfeeding rates by being better support to families. Dr. Brown has more than 100 papers on barriers to meeting breastfeeding goals in the last few years. I mean, breastfeeding goals in the first years of um, babies' lives. And what I also enjoy about Amy is that she's funny and fearless. She, um, yes. If you follow her on social media, you'll get a taste of how she does her part to defend the facts on infant feeding and breastfeeding against those who wish to spread lies and untruths. Amen. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Brown has authored six books in the last five years on breastfeeding. We'll be talking about some of them today. And she also has a new book coming out um, and it will be on Friday, July 10th. And it's called Let's Talk About the First Year of Parenting. So um, definitely a book that I'll be checking out. And that book you said is coming out in September and the announcement is going to be this Friday. Yeah. So it's the end of September. Um, might be a little bit later. I think it will be in the US, but it usually takes a few more weeks to come out. But yeah. Excellent. So why don't we start off with some statistics? Um, infants should be, according to the World Health Organization, their recommendation is infants should be exclusively breastfed for the first six months of life. Exclusive breastfeeding means only human milk or required supplemental vitamins or medicines. And after six months of age, the who says infants should receive nutritionally adequate and safe complementary foods while continuing to breastfeed for up to two years or beyond. And the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends exclusive breastfeeding for six months, followed by continued breastfeeding as complementary foods are introduced with the continuation of breastfeeding for one year or longer as mutually desired by parent and infant. Um, As far as breastfeeding rates in the United Kingdom, where Amy is, and the United States, where we are, the breastfeeding initiation rate, uh, which is parents who start breastfeeding at birth, in the United Kingdom, it's 81%. In the U.S., it is 83%. Exclusive breastfeeding at six months um, in the United Kingdom is 1%, and the United States, 25%. And you thought that was a typo originally when you read that. I did. When I was reading these, when I was reading this statistic, like, that's got to be a typo, because 
I just assumed that the U.S. was at the bottom of that list. <laughs> we no, are in so no, many no, other no, ways. No, no. <laughs> I was like, that can't be right. And then I was watching your videos on YouTube, and I'm like, no, she said 1%. Um, and again, that's the World Health Organization and the Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation is, you know, this exclusive breastfeeding for six months. And then, of course, any breastfeeding at six months, and that could be mixed feeding, which your parents really can be doing, and a mixture of breastfeeding and formula feeding, or pumped breast milk and formula whatnot. The United Kingdom is 34% and the United States. Um, and they're always shocked to find out that we have lower breastfeeding rates than than you do. I mean, it might be differences perhaps in the way things are measured. Um, ours might be an inaccuracy at, at six months. We probably estimate it's probably closer to about six or seven percent for getting to six months um, in reality. But I don't know. But if you think about all the different things that can affect breastfeeding, one thing is actually the going back to work. Now, I know you go back far before us. That's actually what surprised me, is I assumed that the United States had lower rates at six months, not because I think that we're just terrible, <laughs> um, but because, you know, we don't, we're like one of the only industrialized nations that doesn't provide paid maternity leave. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, what is it, like 50% of postpartum women in the United States go back to work within two weeks of birth. It's, it's a really shockingly high number. And almost because of that, I think that in some places and for some people, and certainly not universally, that the expectation of pumping and feeding express milk and pumping at work and storage, even though the conditions not, might not be brilliant, the expectation is there, as in it's normal and people do it. Whereas here, you know, I think things have got a bit better, but certainly when I was going back to work, I really never met very many people who did that. Um, oh, were, interesting. Kids were completely shocked by it. It's, they wouldn't actually necessarily be negative, but they'd be like, you want to do what? Where? Um, can you do it in the toilet? No? Um, oh, well, you can do it in that room. Or uh, They just didn't know what to do with you. And we don't really have proper breastfeeding at work legislation. Um, all we've got is something along the lines of, you should be given space to lie down. <laughs> Because when I pump, I really want to stretch out. Yeah. That's all I got to say. I want... <laughs> like you, don't, you, know, you don't have to, you have to provide different things that would help. Whereas I know that there is more kind of setup in the US to do that when you go back. And I know you've got your horror stories and I know it's really not going to be the case for everybody. And there's going to be huge diversity and layers of privilege or not privilege. But one thing that shocked me when I was writing my first book was that employers can get a discount on their health insurance if they're categorized as breastfeeding friendly because they did work that showed that if you invest in supporting breastfeeding, you actually retain your employees, um, you have more efficiency and happiness out of them. So it's actually a deal worth doing. We have absolutely nothing like that there. So that's one reason. The other reason, um, did wonder if we almost take our health for granted a bit more here because we supposedly <laughs> have the NHS at the moment um, to fall back on. Hmm. And I do wonder if there's something in that that you have to pay for insurance or you have to pay for additional things that maybe makes people approach it slightly differently. Hmm. Um, in some cases, I mean, that's not going to be the case for everybody, but one thing. Um, it's interesting. The other thing that somebody said to me, I was in um, Arizona 
a few years ago and they said to me maybe it's just because we're just generally more positive that you kind of <laughs> more poly, you know like yay you've done it well we're like mm. <laughs> we're all miserable so we decided that might be it as well <laughs> so, hmm. if anybody's got any better ideas <laughs> so for a for a curmudgeon welsh person no i'm just kidding <laughs> so for for you amy you know you're a celebrity in the breastfeeding and infant feeding world for sure partially because you're researching feeding topics so few and researching uh, so if you are researching, right, and partially I think because you have such a great personality and humor to your information, um, but this wasn't originally the work that you intended to set out to do when you were, you know, in school. And so how on earth did you get into this? And also, uh, how did a university allow you to focus your work on breastfeeding, especially in the United Kingdom? I mean, it's no surprise to anybody uh, that, you know, research on women in general, never mind on maternity, pregnancy, breastfeeding is, is lacking in the world of medicine, right? Like the fields of obstetrics and, and to some degree pediatrics, but, but m much, much on uh, obstetrics is like the least evidence-based field of medicine um, as far as like research. So how did that happen? Um, same way, I think it happens for so many people who end up in this world. They have a good or a bad experience with their own children and realize that there's not enough support or there's not enough research out there and they end up deciding to do something about it so when i had my first baby so i started doing a phd i was lucky enough to have funding for it it was meant to be about older children something really ridiculous around um <laughs> you shouldn't bribe older you shouldn't bribe children with food because that will set them up with bad habits. Oh, because you, yeah. you, you came up with that before you actually pushed a baby out of your body, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any no. parent knows that that's total BS. <laughs> um, thankfully, I never went down that route or we wouldn't be speaking now. Um, so I, and then I managed about a few weeks of that PhD before I realized I was pregnant with him. So kind of carried on and as I was kind of researching stuff, I was come, coming across how breastfeeding seemed to be linked into things like eating behavior and weight. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Then I had him and realized that just loads of women around me were having a really difficult time. Um, for some reason, and I still don't know how I did it because I had every sort of risk factor against me. I had a really easy time breastfeeding, even though I call it easy, but I had mastitis multiple times mm. and he fed all night and he never slept. and it was just one of those babies that fed hourly. Um, it seemed easier to me than it seemed a simple way of looking after him. You could just shove a boob in his mouth. <laughs> you really wouldn't appreciate me saying that now. I bet, I bet. <laughs> Don't watch this. <laughs> but everywhere I went, I met women who were like, oh, well, I tried, but I couldn't. Or, oh, you're really brave doing that. Oh, you're so good managing. And at, at one point, I didn't know anybody in the local area who was breastfeeding. They were wow. all bottle feeding. Wow. And the rates were really, really low. So I started kind of thinking, well, what's going on? Why is it happening? And at the time, there was little bits of research, but often not from the UK. So there was some quite good stuff coming out of the US, but there wasn't much psychology in infant feeding. So I started really looking at um, mothers' perceptions of how often their baby fed and what that meant. So whether they really wanted to get into a routine or not, what that meant for breastfeeding, bad news. Um, but why they were trying to use a routine, um, if that's what they were trying to do. And it was all kind of, 
about you know pressure to get them to sleep um worries that you didn't have enough milk all of that and just the complexity of it and i just thought wow there is just so much stuff to be done here i don't think back then i realized i'd still be going now (laughs) 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 but you know you then can't stop can you because you realize you have to keep going and, and going and um yeah, in, in terms of how I got away with it, um, <laughs> and then I just sort of kept going. And to talk honestly, I think they were probably a bit confused at first. They're like, what is she doing? Um, and then as we got going, they were just like, this is good, we're great. And then they're absolute, you know, breastfeeding lactivist sort of university. So, um, they, they can see what I'm doing is worth it. I think I'm very lucky there in that they see the impact on the community. They see the impact on parents. They see a point to it. And they're just very, very supportive. Um, in fact, they asked me to set up a whole research centre in it last year. Um, I'm still going and trying to set it up properly, but it's called LIFT. So lactation, infant feeding and translation. Um, translation being public engagement and stuff like that Um, lift being lifting barriers to breastfeeding Um, so we're hoping to make that into a real center that you know really carries on doing this sort of stuff that's amazing they love a a good book (laughs) (laughs) and and you certainly do provide that I have have three of I have three of them here the others are in my kindle so they're very that's amazing that you have time. So one topic I know I've heard you talk about is this concept of breast is best. And when people are talking about the benefits of breastfeeding, but perhaps instead talking about the risk of formula or the risk of not breastfeeding is more appropriate to normalize breastfeeding as a biological norm. But it's not always easy, as we've just talked about, and society doesn't help parents enough. So why do you feel like so many people do struggle to breastfeed? And what do you suggest people do to make it better? I think that's probably a 20 point question. I know it's, it's been answered in multiple, multiple of your books and others. <laughs> back, back to the beginning, the reason that the breast is best stuff that yeah. I absolutely hate. I think we are slowly getting rid of it. It's a slogan that's on the side of a can of formula. Um, but still people like the World Health Organization still use it. it it's their breast is best for your baby, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's a completely meaningless slogan in that it doesn't actually help anybody do anything, does it? You know, we, we know we shouldn't drink giant glasses of gin when we're doing <laughs> presentations. Um, <laughs> it is water before anybody panics. Um, but, you know, just telling us something is best doesn't help or we'd all be really fit and healthy and, and whatever. It also isn't best because it's the biological norm. So something that's a biological norm can't be best for a baby. But that then brings you into the territory of is does it then mean that formula feeding is a risk? And I hate that just as much because it's just not helpful for parents. And it right, because sometimes they need it. Yeah, exactly. So it would be even more of a risk not to give them formula and to give right. them you know, cow's milk or something. So you've got to be really careful in our language around it. And I, I really don't know what the best phrase is. Breastfeeding's normal. People get upset by that. Um, breastfeeding's a biological norm. They'll accuse me of biological determinism and saying, oh, <laughs> um, no, it's just biologically normal. It's not then it's a feminist know. issue. <laughs> sure, right. You know, I, I don't like risk because it is, risk makes it sound like you give your baby formula and they explode or something. <laughs> and 
it's just not true. We know on a population level, there are health differences. You can't usually pinpoint the specific baby. It's about chance. It's about an increased risk, but it's not a definitive. So if you use the word risk with parents, um, it's really upsetting for them as well and really quite scary if they haven't been able to feed. And then someone will always come up with the line, well, when we talk about smoking, we talk about the risk of smoking. And I'm like, if you just now compared this to smoking, no, please, it's, it's, it's not the same thing. And we've never been quite able to find the comparison. What is it a comparison to? I don't know. But it, it's so tricky. And of course, anybody who works in this field doesn't want to upset anybody. We might be accused of all sorts, but at the heart of it, we don't want to upset anybody. We want to make things better. And people know that if they throw that, you're hurting mothers, you're upsetting them, it'll try and quieten us down. It's just, it's too big a conversation for a slogan, isn't it? Yeah, well, also the Fed, is, the Fed is Best movement came up, and I know you've um, had some interactions with the leaders of that movement. <laughs> yeah, because um, I, I actually heard a talk that you um uh, one of your conference talks where you talked about how saying fed is best is the equivalent in the birth world of saying all that matters is a healthy baby. It invalidates people's experiences. Um, I wish there was a way for us to succinctly say um, your breastfeeding goals are important to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, because that's what it is, right? Whatever your breastfeeding goal is, whether it's one day or one year or two years or pumping your milk and making sure that you can give it to the baby, like your breastfeeding goals are important. Your breastfeeding goals don't have to be the same as my breastfeeding goals. But if you don't meet your breastfeeding goals and you're upset or sad or angry or, you know, stressed about that, like that's what we're trying to prevent. We're not trying to save babies from formula because sometimes people choose formula and, you know, or sometimes babies need formula. We're not trying to, you know, so I wish there was a, a jingle way to say that. <laughs> but we're, we're not an advertising company, are we? Right, um, no. <laughs> selling something, someone would come up with something. The, the Fed is best thing. I mean, if a woman is happy with the phrase Fed is best and it makes her feel better, fine, wonderful, it helps her. Um, the problem for me is all the women it doesn't help and the women who feel that it's that dismissal, um, the same dismissal as all that matters as a healthy baby. Um, of course, we want the baby to be all right. Of course, we want to feed the baby. That's the absolute bottom line. But it doesn't mean that once that baby is fed, we can just forget about everything. If you kind of say it as well, it also, to me, it lets governments off and organisations and actually investing in making this better. Um, in the UK, our statistic is 80% or 90% of women who stop in the first six weeks didn't want to. So they weren't ready and they feel all sorts of stuff because of that. And if you're saying it doesn't matter, then there's no point in fixing it. It doesn't matter, you just have to feed the baby. But if you start breaking it down and think what you're telling her, you're telling her that what she wanted didn't matter. Um, her body work not working doesn't matter. It, there's so many layers to that. Um, that that's my issue with it. I want every woman to be supported in what she wants to do with her baby. But the line I was using, you know, formula might fix the problem of feeding the baby, but it probably is not going to fix the mother if she really wanted to feed. And the grief we see of that, and it is grief, 
I've talked over the years, I mean, it, once you're in this sort of job, you know, you meet random people in the supermarket and they're telling you about their birth, aren't they? Oh, you absolutely. Know, <laughs> yeah. like, the During dentist appointments at the bank, you know, <laughs> getting yeah. your eyebrows waxed. I had one time tell me about her, her VBAC. <laughs> so, and the, the oldest woman I ever met who, when she found out what I did, told me her story. She was absolutely broken by this fact. She was still, you know, she was probably tearing up that baby had just retired. Mm -hmm. So he was in his 60s and she was still crying at the thought of it. And how anyone can say that doesn't matter. And how many years have gone past there, you know, for somebody who could have healed her or supported her or talked her through it. And it's all of that. That's the issue I've got. And I can't see how anybody in their right mind has an issue with that, but they do. Um, everybody's got an issue with that. <laughs> it's so true. Well, I think and we think of breastfeeding as feeding versus nursing or nourishing. And it's so much more than just the food and the nutrition, or, you know, and yeah. of course, someone who's not breastfeeding can still bond with their baby, but it's just different. And, you know, you can do a lot of things in life that you want to do and someone else doesn't want to do them. But I think too, something you've always talked, talked about, Amy, is that it's not even really a choice. Like you don't choose to stop. Like, I mean, sure, there are some people who choose not to breastfeed because they don't want to for various valid reasons, because it's always valid, whatever your decision is. But there's so many barriers put in place. Yeah. And in certain countries, you mentioned the Gambia earlier, there are fewer barriers to that. Having lived in West Africa myself, not in the Gambia, but just, you know, looking at West African rates of breastfeeding, babies are most often born without intervention. They're skin to skin all the time. They're worn most of the time they sleep with their parent, you know, there's good nutrition, there's good exercise, there's good posture, like there's everybody else around who's supporting and nurturing the mother. So there's so many different factors that go into successful breastfeeding in an environment like that, right? But that doesn't happen for everybody. And, and you know, basically the opposite happens, doesn't it? Right. Um, that nurturing of her as a mother and allowing her the time to care for her baby and get to know her baby whilst everybody else cares for her. You just don't have that. Mm. Um, I mean, we almost have the opposite that you're seen as amazing if you like pop out the hospital a few hours after having the baby and go shopping. We'd be like, wow. And I'm just thinking, no, <laughs> go and get, back, get, get into bed, rest, have people cook for you. Um, but our societies are so dispersed, aren't they? And, and that's a lot of what I'm talking about in the new book about just this importance of taking that time to recover and be nurtured and nourished and what the knock-on effect of all of that is. Um, to some extent, we've been seeing it in the UK for some women during COVID. So we've been doing some research that we've just sent off to be um, peer-reviewed of women's breastfeeding experiences during lockdown. And it's kind of a tale of two halves and such. Um, one lot of women really benefited from it because we were stuck in our houses. Um, your mother-in-law couldn't come round. <laughs> not all mother-in-laws. Um, <laughs> um, no visitors. Um, partners home from work or furloughed. Um, working from home, whatever, just around more. Um, couldn't really go anywhere apart from a walk. So all these mothers were saying, 
I'm in my house topless just feeding my baby because there's nothing else to do. So <laughs> I've just fed them lots and there's no one commenting or querying. Nobody's weighing the baby lots and panicking you. You're not going to a baby group and everyone's waving formula at you. And they've really, really benefited. And anecdotally, some midwives are saying they're seeing um, great weight gains back to birth weight by day mm-hmm. five because these babies are just being fed and fed and fed. On the unfortunate side, we know that those women who didn't have such a good experience, who were really struggling, couldn't get the support, um, just felt so devoid of social contact. And especially the ones we found that were living in high-rise flats that didn't have good internet connection, that didn't have a nice place to go for a walk, that were really stuck indoors. They really struggled um, because they just had the opposite because they had no care at all. And um, it's that. It's, It's that if women are cared for, they do so much better. <laughs> I mean, no, it, it doesn't have to be even breastfeeding specific. It's just looking after her helps her. And of course it does. So many cultures around the world know that. Yeah. Religious <laughs> <laughs> scripts, and, you know. And here we just let her get on with it and then wonder why there's a problem. It's true. And in your book, Why Breastfeeding, Grief, and Trauma Matter, you delve into this topic of of guilt. And sometimes many parents have this feeling for giving their baby some formula or for stopping breastfeeding or pumping. And you know, you even talk about how some parents have diagnosable psychological trauma from past breastfeeding experiences, as you just described with that woman whose baby is 60 years old. Um, you know, where as since you have a psychological background, where do you feel that the guilt comes from? Because as we've talked about, it's not always a choice, right? So um, if these people are facing barriers and it's not their fault, you know, where do you feel like this guilt is coming from? How do you suggest parents make decisions so that they don't have guilt or less guilt? Or why do you think so many women struggle to breastfeed? um, And when they can't, they take it all on themselves, Mm. you know? I I think society tells them to. Um, I think a lot of women don't realize it wasn't their fault. They, when you listen to their stories, they blame themselves and go, well, I should have done this or I should have done that. Or they use words like, I gave up, but mm. they didn't. They didn't just decide one afternoon to chuck it in the bin. Um, I failed. No, you didn't. You know, it's that system around you. And if you look at all the different layers of influence on her, yet, as with many things, we have the woman in the centre blaming herself. And the status quo wants to keep the woman in the middle blaming herself. They don't want her to realise that there are things that could have been different. Because I'm thinking more and more about it. It's, you know, if we really look at this, it's medical negligence in Mm -hmm. a sense, really, isn't it? If we look at what happens to women in birth and postnatally and them not getting the support, I don't get why it's not more of a big deal. Um, It's that kind of telling her all the way through pregnancy that, breast is best, you must breastfeed that baby, and then she has a problem and formula's given as a solution. Um, I see that all the time, and they don't even, when I ask the parents, well, did your baby's doctor suggest that you contact a lactation consultant? And they're like, no. We're right here, you know? I like that you talk about it like medical negligence, because it is. I mean, we all know that... uh, uh, the education that pediatricians, which are baby doctors, right? Um, you call them G- or GPs for the parents in, in the UK or family practice doctors get in lactation and not just 
um, you know, anatomy and physiology, but even that's lacking, but, you know, in, in diagnosing lactation issues and, and, and helping solve them is minimal to none. <laughs> and um, the top three things that parents have questions about for their pediatrician is feeding, sleep, and there's one other I'm <laughs> forgetting, but the top two are feeding and sleep. And they don't get, we talked to a sleep consultant a couple weeks ago who said they don't get any training in sleep. They don't get any training in feeding. And the top two things that parents are asking their, their doctors about right. is sleep and feeding. So, you know, that's medical negligence, right? I agree. Um, I think it's almost like they don't see it as a normal physiological function. It's something that those women do. Um, it's something they like doing for a hobby or something. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, it, it's, and I obviously don't mean all medics here. There are amazing of course, medics of that. But I mean, just society in general, we don't seem to see it as a medical issue if a woman can't breastfeed. It's really odd if you think about it, that she can go to a medic and go, my breasts, which are meant to be producing enough milk, aren't working. And they go, right, I'll give some formula then. Not many women can. And you just think, what? At what stage do you go? And, you know, I always kind of equate it of a man going to the doctor with erectile dysfunction. <laughs> I was hoping you would talk about that. <laughs> um, wherever I go. Um, and getting the same message. You know, the things that, you know, you've used that long enough now. Um, lots yeah. of men can't do that. You're just doing that for yourself. Um, you know, Here's you know, a dildo. <laughs> there's a whole market out there you can you know what well, i don't know what it's like there but you just walk into a pharmacist in the uk and there are all sorts of erectile dysfunction drugs on the counter there's a solution oh wow you can buy it um it... here you need a prescription yeah it's so true where how is it all right for that not to work? And um, here, the research for the dysfunction of the mammary gland and what's going on hormonally or with your vitamins and minerals and your thyroid and all those things, that research is not as much as it should be used on actual humans. It's taken from and derived from dairy cow industry, yeah. which is yeah. ridiculous. At least you have a branch. You've got the uh, American... Uh, the, um, What's it called? Breastfeeding Medicine. Academy oh, American of, uh, Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. So you have some medics who specialize in it. We don't at all. It yeah. is something that we have some great people who have taken it upon themselves to do. And I could probably list their names sat here for the UK. Well, what's uh, interesting, what I learned about the ABM, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, it's an international organization. I guess mm -hmm. it's primarily Americans. But you can be a doctor of anything, including a dentist, and as long as you join, then you're going to, you can call yourself a breastfeeding medicine doctor. It doesn't mean you've had extra training. It means you have an interest and you paid a membership fee. So that still doesn't even, yeah. like they say, you have to do the following things to become a breast. It's not like they're in all IBCLCs. Yeah. 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 And again, why, why aren't medics signposting to IBCLCs? If, if they don't know what it is, why don't they go, oh, you need to go to that. I mean, if you go to the doctor with toothache, they'll go, go to the dentist. <laughs> you That's, <know>. true. <laughs> That's not my department. <laughs> oh, go to the IBCLC. Here's the number. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just, it, none of it makes any sense. And it's only because 
you know, it's so tied up in feminism and the history of the female body and how it's been treated and all of that, that it's only how we're in this situation. I just can't believe that it was, if it was a more equitable thing that everybody did, that we'd be in this situation. So... Mm. It's a huge issue. Okay, so... You also have talked about introducing foods, and that's a big topic that I work with with a lot of my clients because I do a group that continues on. So I get I continue to know people um, from my prenatal classes and Melissa's prenatal classes through lactation and feeding groups. But a lot of parents are still being told that introducing food at four months is a good idea or to introduce cereals and you know, you were looking in one of your books, Why Starting Solids Matters, about going back as far, I was impressed, to 98 BC and looking at what the history is. It's amazing what anthropology and history has been able to help us figure out. Um, I was, I just, a couple of things I wanted to highlight. So you said in the 16th and 17th century, foods were introduced at eight to nine months along with breastfeeding. Yay. And then in 1911, the recommendation was to introduce vegetables after they turned three years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, we're following that plan in my house anyway since they won't eat anything but macaroni and cheese so <laughs> but then 28 years later they changed it to nine months for cereals but still you know it wasn't until later that scientists figured out that vitamins and minerals were actually a thing that were important so since 2001 however the introduction introduction of solids has been stated it should be six months all the global organizations say it should be but there are still families saying oh but my doctor said four months so there's all and of course well, our put parents cereal in the bottle at three months that's yep. the other thing i yep. hear still the parents and grandparents and the friends and the neighbors are they're all conflicting advice so what what's the research behind introducing that what's the timing how to figure out whether your baby's ready for it and how are the company profits of formula companies mm -hmm. and food companies coming into play i know you wrote a whole book about it but just a little <laughs> bit of an answer I mean, if you get so going back to that that point at about 1920, around there, so let's say 100 years ago, babies had family foods at around 10, 11 months. Basically, once they were of that kind of physiological development, they got given a bit of food. That was that. Um, there was no weaning industry. Um, then some clever sod learned how to can food. So they were canning vegetables for adults, like canned peas and carrots and stuff. And they realized that they could do this. And this was a great way of keeping some of the nutrients in and keeping those foods edible for longer, that they could ship them later, et cetera, et cetera. So then someone came along and went, all oh, right, but if you can do a jar of that, you could do a little tiny portion, couldn't you, of mushed up stuff and give it to babies. Um, we can create this entire kind of category of food. Um, we can sell it to, you know, the rich mothers as a way of um, not having to spend hours in the kitchen. And again, a bit like formula, it was promoted as being scientifically nutritious and all of this. So it was kind of seen as better for your baby. And you look at the kind of trajectory of the next 20 years, and by about 1950, people were giving solid foods at about six weeks. Because oh, wow. industry had come into play and they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and this is good for your baby give them nutritious stuff they used and to recommend giving kids coca-cola to drink yeah. <laughs> my grandmother's told me when i had my first seven years ago she's 86 years old now she said just give and she'd hold her pinky out if you can't see me because you're listening on the podcast just give a thimbleful just like the tip of your pinky of a little cereal to the baby every day <laughs> i was like what 
he's like just exited my body and she's trying to just on your finger just a little bit that's what the doctor told me she says like your baby was born in 1959 it probably does i need to look up this guy, he was mad. He's called Walter Sackett. Hang on, I'm going to look it up for you because it's so comical. So Walter Sackett was a medic, um, a physician, okay? He published a book called, in 1953 called Bringing Up Babies. Oh, okay, um, she probably had this book. <laughs> she probably did. So first of all, he, he believed that newborn babies should only be breastfed every six hours on the dot. So 12 mm. o'clock, 6 p.m., 12 a.m., 6 p.m., and then you could drop what the nighttime feed because you didn't need it after a few weeks. Um, but he had a kind of thing. So this is the idea, um, and this is not a mistake, okay? It's not, I'm not using the word days wrongly. At two to three days old, you should give your baby cereal. Um, at 10 days, they get strained vegetables. At 17 days, fruits. Three weeks, orange juice. <laughs> Four weeks strained meats, um, five week custard, um, six weeks soup, seven weeks mashed bananas, um, eight weeks egg, and by nine weeks the baby could have bacon and eggs of a morning. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> wow! Yeah. Advice, but that's what she would have probably been told. I feel bad for those babies' tummies. <laughs> so. You know, it, it's no surprise that breastfeeding rates really started falling at that point. See, everything that you kind of look at over the last century is basically the interference of industry again, trying to sell a product, trying to push it. If you design a product for babies, you want them to have it as early as possible to give you as big as markets possible. It wasn't until about the 1990s that we really started coming around and going, oh, hang on a minute, something's not quite right here. The evidence is starting to stack up. that This is probably not good. Um, and so they changed it then in 2003 to around six months. And the idea being this whole idea of developmental readiness. So seeing starting solids as a physiological developmental stage rather than something that immediately happens when they're six months old. So it's the idea that around six months, babies will be physiologically ready to feed themselves. So if they can feed themselves, then surely they're ready for solids. So it's things like being able to sit up um, on their own or sit up well in the high chair. So, you know, they're not lying back um, choking. Um, they can pick up food, they can put it in their mouth, that sort of thing. Um, and it, it's just kind of following that so that for some people it might be around 23, 24 weeks. For some people it might be a bit later, but really kind of looking at your baby's signs. And what's really interesting about it is that that external development matches the internal development. So obviously you can't tell by looking at a baby if they're ready for solids, but somewhere around four to six months, well, between about, yeah, roughly four to six, things like the baby starts producing more digestive enzymes. They can basically digest the food better and they can't before that point. And it will happen during that period, but you won't know just by looking at them. So some babies will be around six months. So the rationale is really, there's no need beforehand. There's no benefit to it. We think there are all these strange benefits of giving solids early and there's not. So that's where the six months comes from. Um, but as you say, everybody's got a family member, hasn't they, who tells them something weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we actually learned in our episode about sleep with Teresa Stewart that there's 
you know, this old myth of if you give the baby solids or if you give the baby formula, or if you give the baby cereal, they'll sleep better. Um, you know, this is someone who studied sleep for, you know, years. And she said that if the circadian rhythm doesn't develop till four months. That's when babies start to maybe um, have that quote sleep regression, right? And introducing solids does not help or affect their circadian rhythm at all. It biologically, it, you know, if, if your baby happens to sleep better, it might be a coincidence, but formula fed or breastfed babies or breast milk fed babies, all, you know, it doesn't affect their circadian rhythm. So it's, you know, biologically just untrue. It's not true. Um, you talk about, you know, again, this in your book, Informed is Best, how research that looks at bi the biologically normal um, is less likely to be funded. And we've talked a little bit about that being related to women, you know, especially. And, you know, companies that make infant feeding products, as we've learned, are not always have benevolent intentions, right? They're trying to increase their market shares and profits for shareholders. And um, if babies are only babies for so long, let's try to figure out how we can um, extend the amount of time that parents are buying these products. And that's where we see things like toddler formula, right? Which doesn't make any sense biologically, but if you know babies are only drinking formula while they're babies, and we want to sell more formula, well, now maybe we can invent a toddler formula. Well, it's also related to the size of bottles and that they sell nipples that have a faster flow for three months and a faster flow at six exactly. months and a faster flow at nine months, which is not your breast. If we look at the breast as being the biologically normal way of feeding a baby, the breast does not speed up the flow once your baby turns six months. So it doesn't make right. sense. They want to sell more products. And many of the studies on infant and child nutrition are funded by formula companies and companies that make primarily foods that are known to be unhealthy. Can you speak a little bit about the influence how this influences nutritional guidelines and how advertising influ influences our perceived choices. Yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of all stacks up, doesn't it? That if, as academics, we need to get funding to do our research. So we need money to do the research itself, but we usually also need funding, bringing it through, showing that we can get it to stay in our academic jobs. So we need it. So, if you're an academic who takes funding from the formula industry, you're much more likely to be successful. You're more likely to get a job, um, find it easier. You'll have money, um, all good from your perspective, um, not so good from other perspectives, but it, which means that you're more likely to be in a post doing that type of research, which means more research gets done. And if the formula industry is funding all this research, all this research gets done. Um, who funds breastfeeding research? Who is going to fund it? There's no one who would do it as a product, as a company, as a, who would do, there's no equivalent, which means that less research gets done. So there's less research against this whole kind of mountain. And of course, not everything that companies who do research, it doesn't all get published. So there's a very kind of, throughout the food industry, you see that there are all these like real weighting towards studies that find positive results that benefit the industry that paid for them. Right. So there's this, and I can't remember the exact statistic, but if independent researchers study something and those funded by industry study something, those funded by industry are more likely to find a benefit compared to, or at least they're more likely to publish a benefit compared to the independent ones. So it all just gets completely skewed and then you have these 
people who, because they've done loads of research, get up higher in academia, so they're, they're seen as more powerful and they're invited onto more things and they get paid to travel around more. And it just all means that, not pointing fingers at any individual, but as a whole, it helps to be researching that. It's it's not an easy road at all to try and research any sort of biological norm. Really difficult. Which is and why it's even more amazing that you are at a university <laughs> that allows you to do that and you figure out the funding one way or another. <laughs> but it is a really tricky thing because you just see so much conflict of interest, so much funding of breastfeeding stuff as well by the formula industry and you just think why why are they funding this why would there be there's a big expose back i think in about i want to say the 70s or the 80s and 90s somewhere around there 70s or 80s where they realized that um coca-cola had started funding research into exercise <laughs> and you're like why are they funding research into exercise it's because they wanted to develop the narrative that health and weight was all to do with how active you are, not that sugary drink you're drinking. That's nothing to do with anything. It's all about exercise. So they were funding that research. And you just think it just... Same thing with fat and sugar. Um, if you look into the history of how everything became low fat, no fat, it's because the sugar industry, that's so funny. We have like big pharma, you know, we have, we have big sugar, big sugar is actually a thing. Big dairy. Sugar is, yeah, big dairy. It's, it's actually a thing. It's a huge lobby. Um, and, uh, you know, they were the ones that were responsible, you know, originally I, I want to say it was the fifties, but I'm not quite sure. I'd have to, I'd have to relook it up, but, um, you know, there was a researcher that had a considerable amount of evidence that said that sugar was a big link to obesity, but big sugar didn't want that published. And so they funded another researcher to publish a study about how fat was the problem. Mm -hmm. And then that's how we got the whole like the low fat, no fat. And guess what? Guess what's in low fat, no fat products? Because guess what? Fat is delicious. And so it tastes better. And so if you take the fat out, it's not going to taste good unless you add <gasps> sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so 10 years from now, I want to challenge us. We need to figure out how to make big breast. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. We've got big pharma, big dairy, big breast. <laughs> That's so true. Oh, um, man. So as a closing exercise, although it, we'll see how it goes. Um, so in your book, Breastfeeding Uncovered, which is so rich, full of information, it was your first book and it was mind-blowing. Um, one thing that I noticed early on is that you list 18 steps that could help improve breastfeeding for families. And I was thinking of maybe doing a quick fire kind of question and answer with you based on some of these steps. So I'll state a step. And then if you could make a few comments or suggestions related to that step, some of them we've already covered. So I'll skip a couple. <laughs> um, the lightning okay. round, Amy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this one's a fun one. Step eight, bin the rubbish baby care books. So throw away the bad baby care books. So how do families determine which are not the good baby care books besides making sure they have all of your books? Yeah. But all what my books are good books. Of course. No <laughs> bias here. <laughs> no bias here. But how do you tell? There's so many books that are awful. They're books that sell you a dream, that sell you a promise that your baby will behave non-human like. Um, it's True books that promise you that it can get your baby to sleep all night um to feed every four hours when for most babies that just isn't true you have some babies who do sleep all night and who do 
um, feed every four hours on the dot. Most is absolutely biologically normal to A, wake up at night for reasons other than hunger and B, to have frequent drinks and snacks through the day. So it's, it's that type of book. And we've done research on that since we've published that book, really looking at how reading those books is linked to mental health. So we showed that if you read the books and you just happened to have a really good time with them and you felt like they worked, you felt more confident, you felt happier. However, if you read them and you felt they didn't work, you ended up feeling much worse. Um, mothers were saying felt like a failure, felt really anxious. Their postnatal depression rates were much higher. Um, unfortunately, it was only about 15, 16% of families there who were saying that these books worked for them. So it's, you know, it's, it's selling the dream and it, it, it causes a lot of problems by, you know, saying for your mental health, yeah, but also suggesting you can feed your baby in a routine and still breastfeed fine and you probably can't. Right. Strict one anyway. It's just not how it works. It's true. And one of the talks I listened that you gave, um, you talk about this idea that, you know, we don't want to be realistic. A lot of people don't want to be realistic with how hard parenting is or how hard breastfeeding can be because they don't want to discourage people from doing it. But then you also say, which I thought was great, like, but what we think that women are just like these wilting flowers, they can't like handle it, you know, um, you know, you can do hard things. This is my mantra as like a childbirth educator and a, and a nurse. Like I teach a new baby and postpartum ready class for babies in common. And it is not a promise of how I can make things better for you. My motto is I'm going to tell you that you're going to go two weeks past your due date so that if you actually go before you're happy. If I tell you, you're going to go before and you go a day past, you're going to be really mad. Right? <laughs> so if I tell you, if you do X, Y, and Z, your baby is going to sleep through the night, quote unquote, your baby's going to be a, as you have a wonderful, um, uh, animation from Swansea university. And we, we can pop, we can put that on our, on our website about what's a good baby and how that's just a yeah. terrible thing to tell people or ask people. But, um, you know, if you, if you promise this quote, good baby, that doesn't actually require you to change your life in any way, shape or form, which is unrealistic as human human and biologically unrealistic, um, then we set people up for failure. But you know what, if I, if I set you up with realistic expectations and then you happen to have that unicorn baby that sleeps five hours in a row at night, then you can be really proud of that unicorn baby, but not feel like devastated when your baby doesn't live up to this impossible ideal. Um, I love that you, that you have those animations that really bring home, Hey, you can do hard things and you know, uh, you're, you're strong and babies are not robots. <laughs> I think that feeds into two the question. So step 15, regulate products that are designed to create anxiety in new moms. Mm -hmm. So one example that you've given is the apps to track feedings. Yeah. So there's the apps and they're not even the worst thing. I mean, we don't as adults eat and drink in a set pattern. We don't drink every four hours, a set amount each time. We just humans don't work like that. There are lots of things that affect our hunger and thirst. So why would a tiny little baby be any different, especially when they've only got tiny little tummies? So any kind of apps that give you the illusion that this can be controlled is really anxiety inducing to me. But that one is really about the products that are horrific. There's this whole range of products that of course gets funding and loads of money um, to kind of track how much milk you're making and mm -hmm. um, how much the baby's having. So there's one that, Richard Branson funded earlier, 
this year or last year, it was a nipple shield with a sensor in it. Mm-hmm. So you fed with this nipple shield and it supposedly calculated milk intake. Oh my There's- Lord. There was another one where you put like a sensor on your baby's neck and it would listen for swallows. And then the app would like tell you how much, and then there was, I think there was something that you'd put on your breast even that would like try to sense how much milk you had in the breast. Mm-hmm. And none of them were a good idea. No, they just, it, how much milk your baby is drinking is irrelevant, really, um, in that what is the right amount when this is a drink as well as food? What's relevant is your baby's hydration, their physical state, their weight gain. That's what's relevant, not what you put in. Um, some babies will take less, some will, you know, it's, if you get a figure, what does that mean? <laughs> if it's yeah. Right, what do you do with the, what do you do with the data? Right. Yeah. And you also talked um, about in one of your talks, these products that you can get your breast milk tested and then they're incredibly expensive, like 700 to $800. And it can tell you if there's toxins in your breast milk. Well, spoiler alert, there's toxins in formula. There's toxins in our air. There's toxins in our water. There's toxins everywhere. But B, if you do get information back that there's toxins in your breast milk, which there probably is because you're a human that lives in this world. Right. Um, what are you going to, are you going to feed your baby that? And then what's the alternative? Oh, well, hey, here's this formula. (laughs) Which also has toxins in it. Which also has toxins because it's from this world. It's not from some (laughs) alien world. It's also from food grown in this world. But we're feeding a robot alien. Right. A baby you can plug in, right? Can we plug the baby into the smartphone? I actually, I'm curious about that. Well, if we can do that, that's fine. (laughs) That's a hundred hundred years from now. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think particularly amongst families who maybe have babies later who are used to a certain standard of living, that they have lots of money. They used to being able to buy solutions to things. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if I just spend enough money on this, it'll work. And it won't. It's, it's, yeah. That's true. <laughs> and, and these things, you know, for anybody listening to this call, these products are not based in science. You know, they might be, you know, in, innovative, it, it, just like, from the very basic definition of that word, <laughs> you know, creative thinking, but that, but they're not scientifically based. They're not created by breastfeeding and lactation experts. They're created, as I said in the last podcast, Jeanette, my grandfather always said, if you don't know the answer for something, the answer is probably money. And I feel like that's, that's with this as well, right? Like why was this product made? Is it because there's a need? No, it's because that people can capitalize on, on parental anxiety. And if we can, if we can drum up this anxiety, doubt and guilt in your body and what your body can do, then we can make money off of that. Right. So the other thing too, is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about how sometimes mothers can't make enough milk. Um, but so there's two main reasons for that. One is maybe they have some type of anatomical problem, like not enough mammary tissue, but that's very, very, very rare. Um, second is maybe because they're sabotaged by these unrealistic expectations, they're simply not putting the baby to the breast enough. And lactation is most simply a supply and demand. But C is sometimes they have plenty of milk <laughs> and they've just had these doubts seeded into them um, be, that, that it's not enough because they can't measure it, right? Or they're using metrics, um, like how much they can pump, for example, that don't a- actually correlate to how much their bodies can make. And so, you know, parents have to be aware and educated about like things we've talked about. 
um, actual metrics that we can use, like you're saying, peas and poops and weight gain and not things like scans and, and stickers and sensors and, you know, tests. I think we need to create a GoFundMe or some sort of Swansea University funding program where parents who feel the need to buy some of these products instead take that money and donate it to you to do research. <laughs> that would make more sense. Like what's really like happening. Night or something I could, you know, Zoom them and say, it's all all right. You're all okay. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know how there's a show in America called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And it's like a comedy show on our public radio. And um, if you win the the host of the show who has this really interesting voice, he'll call and leave a, he'll call your personal cell phone and make your outgoing message his voice. <laughs> I feel like maybe we can capitalize on this, Amy. Like maybe if people donate to you and your, and your Lyft organization, you can like call their phone and <laughs> be like, it's all right. Everything's fine. You're doing wonderfully. Your breasts are making plenty of milk, right? And like, and, and it'll just like ping on your phone like every seven. Oh, thank you, Amy. That sounds, can we make that work? That would be wonderful. I would love that. <laughs> Carry on. Cheerio. <laughs> I will By the way, I, I think everybody can agree that I just did a spot on Amy Brown. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Well, I, I'm happy to record those, Amy, if you want to help. I, I can help market them out to all the families. Um, okay. One, maybe, let's see. M Melissa, do you have one last question that you're burning to ask? Out of our... um, no, I think that we've covered so much. This yes. has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, so, so much. So I had one more question. Can you be my PhD advisor, pretty please? <laughs> I can come over there if you need me to. Um, it's fine. We do everything by Zoom, don't we? So. All right. But we need funding for the PhD, so uh, that's a problem. Well, we're going to fund through the sign-up service. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna, the sign-up service is going to be great. And in 10 years, mark our words, we're going to get big breasts going. It's going to be a huge lobby in Washington. <laughs> yes. So can you share a little bit more about what your new book that is coming out in September, but you're announcing it or you just, in, by the time this is, this, this show is out, it will have just been announced um, in a few days ago, but what is the new book called and what's it about? So it's called, let's talk about the first year of parenting. And the idea came from kind of two ideas. One that everything is sort of focused on the baby. Um, you have that baby, everyone comes around to visit the baby, they bring you little clothes, you're kind of forgotten in it all. Um, whereas we know all that stuff, rich stuff from different cultures around different traditions and ways of caring for new mothers is so important. And there's not, there's not a lot there, a really kind of comprehensive guide on how to care for you in that first year. So to caring for you and your partner, it, it's it's quite a comprehensive book should we say <laughs> digging into the first year there's just so much stuff that you need to cover that you think right they need to know this they need to know that <laughs> they need to know everything so it's kind of the the stages it, it talks about um the importance of looking after you after having that baby so recovery um getting support um things like visitors um useful presence hiring a doula postnatally, um, IBCLCs who can help you, all of that. It talks about caring for your baby kind of relatively briefly, talking about normal baby behaviour, the fourth trimester, sleep, feeding, 
but you know it's it's a, a good overview rather than being it's really about more about you in all of that so how you feel about these things and what's normal and looking after you then it does your physical recovery and health so it does things like nutritional deficiencies to look out for you're feeling run down pelvic floors posture pains um so much stuff around there getting back into exercise or doing exercise for the first time uh, <laughs> and then emotional stuff around normal feelings when you have a baby so what's completely normal like wanting to run away um <laughs> and hide and never come yeah. back actually a very normal feeling um all of all of that stuff but also then more kind of deep mental health stuff so um anxiety depression um, postnatal rage is a big one that we're kind of talking about a lot more. Birth trauma, um, looking at birth trauma and mental health in partners and men as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is a big topic about about that. Um, kind of obsessive thoughts and how it's actually quite normal to have um, the thought where you imagine yourself throwing the baby out the window or something. Mm-hmm. About how that's actually quite a really highly unlikely to do it, but it's actually a a common trick of the brain almost like mm. it's talking you through not doing it and then relationships um single parenting same-sex parenting challenges you might face that are different going back to work not going back to work stay at home dads i did say this was comprehensive yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, like, wow. I'm just writing it all down <laughs> I, I i can't wait to get this book because um i'm gonna recommend it to everybody that takes my my new baby ready mm. class because we First of all, not enough people take childbirth class to begin with, but Correct. that's a whole other, you know. Mm. Uh, but, but those who are interested in learning about pregnancy and birth, some many times spend all of their time, money, and energy on just learning about labor and nothing, nothing yep. about what it's like to the realities of parenting a newborn. Um, so thank you for writing that book. I look forward to reading it because it's absolutely something that is um, very much needed by, yeah, by, by women and partners. It's what I hope, you know, it's what I think we all needed. We all needed that book and that information. And it's all about knowing where, because even though it's a comprehensive book, you can't get everything in. So it's all about knowing where to go and get more support. Like go here, go there. There are people mm-hmm. there. They can help you. This is going to be all right. Um, just letting new parents focus on themselves as well. It's not just about that baby. Like they matter too. So a kind of hug, really a big hug for new parents. Hmm. I think everybody listening, I I would like to say that again, you matter too. (laughs) Here's a virtual hug. (laughs) Thank you, Amy, for centering all of the moms in this as well. It's not just about the baby, although the baby is super important, but I love that you're doing all this research and it's impacting everybody's lives and not only on a professional level, but individuals. And I hope people will listen and get your books and give them to grandparents and care providers. And I know you've got another one specifically written for supporting medical professionals on how they can support families too, which um, is of course necessary as required reading for all care providers. But anyway, we could talk forever, but thank you so much for taking time away from your busy life, writing and taking care of three children and being a professor and overseeing master's degree programs and uh, making time to see to be on our show. And um, yes, thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And like Jeanette said, your work is not just um, impacting the UK. It's making a huge positive impact here in the United States and elsewhere as well. So thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
having me. So our next episode will come out after July 15th. We'll be talking with a functional medicine doctor, Dr. Julia Resnick, and she's in private practice and focuses her practice on women and has a special interest in exploring why some people don't make enough milk. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and we hope you'll visit babiesincommon.com slash show. We have many great topics and guests coming up. Our show is available as a video recording and as a podcast on our website, also on Spotify and Apple podcasts. And always, as always, remember Babies in Common is a community for you. After all, we all have Babies in Common. common. <laughs> Thank you so Yay. much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Babies in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate a positive review on whichever podcast player platform you use, as that helps more people find our podcast. We wish you a fantastic day that includes learning at least one new thing, finding something to giggle about, and getting at least one hug, even if it's from yourself.